Hello everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Ospensky. Today we are discussing Chapter 8 and we will be covering this chapter in two parts over separate podcasts. This is Part 1. You will find the audio version of the full chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website, philosophyrekindle.com. Today, my panel members are Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar, and Stephanie Oldfield, university graduate majoring in psychology and English. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author and podcaster by night, computer programmer and risk advisor by day. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks Pete and Steph for joining me. So, Chapter 8, how are you going, Pete and Steph? Good, good. I'm fine. I'm indignant. You're indignant. Why are you indignant? <laughs> you, we're going to come to that. Okay. Okay. Well, let's get started then. Let's get started. So chapter eight is the beginning of the next part of the book. So it's, it's a brand new world. And Spensky starts the chapter introducing a concept without explanation called I, and we're talking about the capital letter I. And I must say, what does he mean by I? So I will give you a, uh, an excerpt to put it in context. In order exactly to define the relation of our I, and that is the capital letter I, to the external world, and to determine what in our receptivity of the world belongs to it and what belongs to ourselves, let us turn to elementary psychology and examine the mechanism of our receptive apparatus. So oh, that's interesting. Before you start, no, go on. I've got to, I've got to step in here because I have a different translation. It's not my mine doesn't is that say right? that. Okay, so what does yours say? Well, where you use the capital I, I have the word psyche, which confuses the hell out of everything that comes in this chapter. Because psyche does not refer to the ego, which the capital I usually is intended to imply. The relation of our psyche to the external world and to determine that. So I'm even more indignant now. I haven't even started. Yes, well, that's interesting because the version I've got was the 1920 translation, so that would have been prior. So a subsequent translation has put the word psyche in, which we also noted last time has not been defined. And he does use the word psyche all the way through this chapter still. Um, We'll get to that. So in in my opinion, I thought he was referring by the capital letter I to our consciousness, but perhaps not. You're saying it's the ego. Well, yeah. Um, When you have a capital I, uh, that that really subjective I, you're usually referring to the ego. If you read um, any of the psychology texts um, from his era, I I might add, we're talking about Freud, Jung, and so on, well, particularly Freud. We, we know what we're talking about there. Somebody has taken it upon themselves to say, you know what, when he said I, he was really meaning the psyche. Okay, so what do we do with it? Um, because, see, I, have, I, and Steph, I'm gonna... I have absolutely no idea. I'm, I'm stumped at this point because it is an issue. Steph, you've done psychology. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say this chapter was the jam. <laughs> um, <laughs> I looked at it, uh, the capital I, I didn't look at it as that Freudian ego psyche, um, particularly because the psychology I studied has very much moved away from Freud. 
um, it's it's become very yeah, but different. You've got to look at the time. And, you've got to look at the time in I, which he wrote it. I know. Yeah. So what I was saying, though, from my point of view, when he when the capital I was used, I actually took that to mean the internal consciousness of being in the external world. If that makes sense. Makes more sense. So that's like the psyche. That's a little bit, yeah, like the psyche. But at the same time, it has that bit of difference. So it's not just the ego or the id or any of those Freudian terms, the whole thing, emotions, muscles, everything that we would look at ourselves to say we are people. I, as a noun, I looked at it from that point of view. Okay. Okay. So he says, in order to define the relation of our uh, 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 whatever it is to the external world, and to determine what in our receptivity of the world belongs to it. So is that referring to our senses? I took that as referring to our senses or referring to our meanings we have, referring to things that we can look at and have meaning um, and an understanding of. Um, that doesn't mean that, can't, that you know, category can't change or anything, but that's what I took it as. So those sensitive things that you start off with as a young child, you know, this is soft, I don't like that. Or this is, you know, this, I do like that. That's what I took that as. The only reason that this is problematic is because of what this book is about. If this was a, um, an elementary textbook on those matters, then fine. But I know that he's trying to describe consciousness and I know how this book ends. I know what the last chapters are. So... To me, this is a fundamental confusion. Again, on, on the chapters where you, you weren't here, Steph, we've had this discussion and, and actually argument again and again and again about his interplay with the terms consciousness and psyche with no explanation of what he means by either. And then other, um, other descriptions and other, other uses of language where we have absolutely no idea and we have to make assumptions that he's implying either consciousness or psyche. And there is no, and this is why it's, it's irritating here that my translator has used the term psyche again, as though, oh, everybody will know what that means. Yeah. Well, we don't, You're, we don't in this context. So it's, it's, it's been a, a minefield <laughs> to go through Yeah. because, and, because we have no definition of terms. And actually I was thinking that when I was listening to it, because, um, and it's still a debate today because I, I do know that. So I usually mm. read this about twice because I read it first and I like to yeah. write down my impressions as I do now and then go back and think, okay, what was he actually meaning in this, there and that? And how does that relate to what my first interpretation was now yeah. in the current view? Um, but one of the things which is really interesting with this chapter is the term consciousness. Um, and I, you know, you can correct me if you're wrong, if I'm wrong, Peter, but I don't know in the field of philosophy, but certainly in the field of psychology, depending on which school of thought you're in, everyone's got a different term of it. And there actually isn't a full on agreed universal definition of what it is to be conscious and what consciousness okay. itself is. So well, I think that's really interesting for this chapter because that changes so much, whatever your your own definition is. Absolutely. And this is this is a problem that we have with Uspensky. It really, really. Can does. I throw in something I, else? Well, I'm gone. No, no, because I haven't finished. Um, the the fact is that we've got consciousness coming up through this chapter all the time, and the way in the world of we'll go beyond philosophy and let's go let's go into the people who are working with consciousness. So what he calls these 
um, religious structures and the mystical and occult structures, which you know comes up in the next couple of pages, they will tell you that it cannot be described and it can only be experienced, and the experience is entirely subjective. This is this is a mathematician trying to use mathematics to describe an abstract painting. Uh, and that's the nearest I can get to, to explaining what, what is going on here. Um, there are um, videos that you can look at on YouTube, and anybody listening to this that wants to do it, put a search in, in, in Google or something for Housewife Takes LSD 1950s, and you will see film of psychiatrists giving LSD to these housewives and then seeing their reaction and listening to what they say. And they find it important. In fact, you'll hear the phrase time and time again. I can't describe it. You have to see it. Can you not see it? Uh, it comes up all the time. Now, people for thousands of years have understood that consciousness in this, in this sense, this, this mystical sense, has to be experienced. It is entirely subjective, and language just is not sufficient to describe it. Not even English, which is got more words available to it than any other language we know, and we still can't find the combinations that will describe this. So it's interesting that a mathematician needs to have certainty, whereas people who are actually working in this field don't. Go and experience it and have your own experience. Sorry, Alice, but I needed to say that. So you were, you were going to say. That's brilliant um, because I think what I – what I was going to say may or may not have been explained now after you've said that because what I was going to say is he brings this other term in called your psychic life. Yeah. So so what does he mean by psychic life? And that, that's a little further on, but that's something to think, you know, that, that, is that the same? Are we, are we talking the same uh, meaning, just a different term, or is that something else as well? Like, uh, you know what I'm saying? Is that is that the life you experience? Is that your psychic life? Is that the life of... of uh, of um, the experience, experiential life. Experiential, yeah. But look, I, I've got a feeling when I read it that what he's trying to suggest there is that this is a this is a universal experience that we all have. That because he wants he wants to actually put things in little boxes, um, so that you know we all have this. I mean, I have I have all kinds of scribble in my book, which the listeners can't hear, but you no, might I can see. see. Yes, I, I can know, see I've it. Got, I'll vouch for that. Yeah. It's, I, you know, because there are things that need explaining. That I, if you take it at face value, you'll come away with nothing. Well, that's, yeah, it, it's not something you just gloss over. So let's, let's, let's go a little bit deeper into the chapter. And I, I just want to preface yeah, yeah, please, the next... Because, it, because these might come out as we go further in, but we might actually... Yeah pull some things together, as, as has happened in the past, yeah. Yes, tease it out. So um, the next uh, little bit, and just to, to note that we are only doing the first half of this chapter at the, for this session, so, you know, we've got loads to, to cover in those you know, few pages. But <laughs> he talks about, he starts building building a story about the different levels of experience and how... Um, and, and he's relating them to consciousness. So he starts, and, and I'm going to go ahead a little bit so we can come back, but he starts by saying we, we have sensations and these sensations are, are two types of, come into two categories, 
things like color, texture, things that the, you know your senses perceive, and then there are sensations that are grouped together based on them all being happening at the same time. For example, you could say that you get a sensation of a tree when you see leaves, branches, trunk all together in one place at one time, and you could say that's a sensation of of um, of the tree. Then he says these sensations grouped together become perceptions like there's a tree or um, that colour is red or that colour is, um, you know, I, I see three colours, two are the same and we're going to call that colour red uh, or that colour blue. Then he says when you group perceptions together, you get concepts. For example, you might say a perception is that tree, I perceive that tree, but a concept is, well, not just that tree, but trees in general. So, so when I see trees, I'm seeing, you know, and then, and then more complex concepts grouped together are ideas. So these are things that you can't actually describe, you can allude to with language, things like well, the concept of morality, the concept of religion. And then right above that on the very top is intuition, which he says is a sought after uh, less commonly um, experienced. So that's kind of the scaffold he, he builds. Um, and I want to go into that in more detail now. But, Pete, you've got some things to say already, I can tell. Have I? I, I, I just, first of all, I, I want to know, because obviously now we've understanding that you guys have got a different version of this book to me. Do you have, in paragraph two, this phrase, well, this, this word, um, construct word, psychophysics? What was he it says, again, psycho? Psychophysics. He's, when he's talking oh, yes, about I've got that. Yeah, we've got that. What the hell is that? You might know, Steph. Go, what Steph. Is I have an actual definition I can read. Go for it. All right, let me just get it up here. Yeah, go for this one. I just think if we all, instead of me explaining it, I'll read you the actual definition I've yeah. got. So psychophysics, the science of defining quantitative relationships between physical and psychological events. So what Is does that mean? Yeah, I was going to say, is anybody better off there? <laughs> so what it means, uh, so when we study this, what we're looking at is, um, so we actually study perception in a similar sense. Uh, well, at least I have at my university yeah. courses. Uh, so cool. where we study is the same thing. So a group of sensations becomes a perception. A group of perceptions becomes a concept, and that goes so on and so on. Uh, we need those senses to essentially transfer information to our brains and that gives us that information oh that is a tree oh trees in general are around that's a different tree that's there psychophysics is quantifying that relationship so putting it down to essentially a mathematic relationship we look at things like how long it takes for the stimulus to be identified uh the process it is in that quantifiable way so for example um the main one we use is sound so we look at the physical properties of sound the decimals, the pitch, the frequency, all of those things, and how that then relates to that psychological experience of we hear different tones, we hear language, we hear speech, and our behaviours will act on that. Is that like scratching your fingernails down a chalkboard, producing a sound that is awful, getting a response, measuring that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, and why is that not subjective? Because physics, 
usually tries to find universal certainties. That, I mean, mm. is what physics, this is what physics, standard physics is doing. I can't see how your experience and your response time uh, would be the same as mine. So what tends to happen is, and again, I do want to point out, I am not an expert in this. No, but, uh, so I am purely going <laughs> off this one part in my lecture. So I'm really yeah. sorry to my lecturers so they're listening to this at some point going, good God, I taught you better. But <laughs> basically... <laughs> Um, so basically, it's more what you'll do is you can you can get an average. This is how we look at things. We determine if people ah, have a different right. so thing of the sensation. So you can collect it. Yeah, it will yeah. be different for each person. But then we can look at that sample in a group of population and go, oh, so on average, people respond like this. So if someone responds really, really differently to that sensation, they experience that sensation completely different. We can then go, all right. So what was the? We can now look at the details between those two. Did you experience the same decimal in that sound? Did you experience the same pitch? Did you experience the same frequency of the wavelength? What was it that was different and how did that change your perception of the sound? Okay. That's what you can sort of um, look into. And if the sound was the same and they are coming up with a, with a different result from, you know, the, the strain from the statistical mean, mm. then, yeah. then you can look at them and say, what's different about you? Yeah, the that the others aren't, aren't seeing yeah. this on a, on a significant uh, okay. level. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I get it. I get it. Yeah. So it is well, looking at those things. Because I, I did wonder. <laughs> okay. I did wonder what that phrase meant. Now I've got an idea. Yeah. I, I so mean, I'd call thing. it... I mean, I wouldn't yeah. use physics. I would call it mm. psychostatistics. But, I mean, mm. but, but it is it, it's looking it, at those know, physical I, I do understand. Properties. Yeah, looking at those physical mm. properties, looking it. at the wavelength of colour and things like that, um, yeah. and seeing I how that changes. That. Yeah, and that yeah, and and we can actually give a specific um, quantifiable um, analogies to that. So we we could say so many mm. megahertz of frequency and so much, you know. Uh, we we have the SI units to give yeah. them a definition. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I get it. I mean, thank you because yeah. I really <laughs> I really was wondering. I it's not something that's come into my world, mm. and you know, and I thought, what the heck is he on about? He talks. He's saying as though I was no. <laughs> I was actually super happy because I literally only found that out about six weeks ago. So <laughs> when it came up in this chapter, I was like, yes, I know this. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's deconstruct that whole little section because I think, you know, now that we've, we've had a little peek into it, I'm just going to read, kind of paraphrasing it. What he starts this chapter is he's saying the fundamental unit of our receptivity is a sensation. And he's saying the definition of a sensation is an elementary change in the state of consciousness produced, as it seems to us, either by some change in the state of the external world in relation to our consciousness or by a change in the state of our consciousness in relation to the external world. Now, that's that reeks to me of X equals Y and Y equals X, but I'm going to come you let you come back to that. And he says, such as teaching physics or psychophysics, there's your sentence, into the consideration of the correctness or incorrectness of the construction of these sciences, I will not enter. Suffices to define a sensation is an elementary change in the state of consciousness as the element that is the fundamental unit of this change. So what do you make of that? Well, I make, I make this of it. The first, the, the second sentence, you know, because he starts, the fundamental unit of our receptivity is a sensation. This sensation is an elementary change in the state of our psyche. You said consciousness. 
look at the problem and and we really must separate psyche from consciousness the two are not the same and i and i my translation uh, yeah mine says a change an elementary change in the state of our psyche and i've got that underlined because i'm questioning that big time uh, whereas your version's got consciousness how interesting is that that seems like uh, there's a little bit of free um, free movement with the translation from English oh, to God. English. It gets even worse because, can, can I just read this, this, no, this sentence? This sensation is an elementary change in the state of our psyche produced, as it seems to us, either by some change in the state of the external world in relation to our consciousness or by a change in the state of our psyche in the relation to the external world. Well, what are we talking about here? Is it psyche? Is it consciousness? Is it interchangeable? Why not use the same damn word in the same sentence if we're talking about the same thing? This, this now, my version of this is not as, I'm not saying that yours is clear, but yours at least has consistency. I, I, I'm all over the place with this. I'm going to have to sit well, I can imagine so. Well, now you can see why I was Mr. Indignant right from the start. I, it's like, surely, surely an intelligent person would not have written this. And they possibly yeah. didn't. They possibly wrote the same word twice. Because even if you translate it from the Russian, technically you'd say, well, you're using the same word in the sentence over and over, so I'll translate it as the same word. I'd like to think so. So you don't know, do you? You don't know what's going on. I do not know. know I do not know. So needless to say, I think what he's saying is we're going to start with a fundamental unit, and that is sensation. That's where I think he's starting when he's building this. That I can accept. Uh, I can accept this. So, Steph, have you got anything to add to that before we go to the next little bit? Yeah, no, I think with this one, my main thing that sort of, what got me was the the consciousness and I don't want to go too far ahead because I know we're only focusing on the first half. Um, and, you know, I'll talk about it more when we talk about his difference between um, intuitive responses and automatic responses and things. But yeah, um, sensation, <laughs> I personally don't think you necessarily are consciously aware of all the time. Um, it's not. only when it's at a certain threshold that we become aware of it. Um, otherwise we would, you know, we wouldn't adjust to anything ever. We wouldn't, you know, feel every time there was a puff of air gone by, we would, you know, jump out of our skin essentially. Yeah. And so I found that a little bit problematic in the sense that I don't think the definition was set up with the boundaries as well as it should have been. I think what he was trying to get at was he was trying to say, okay, well, sensations, this thing that we talked about before, it's talking about it in that psychophysics and physical sense. Um, and now we're just going to gloss over and say that that's that and move on. But that's not just that, you know. Um, well, now he's we, saying it's a change in state of consciousness, not yeah, just something physical. Yeah, and that's physical. completely different. Pete? Well, um, here's, this is the interesting thing. Um, I, I was out last night with my friend Dawn Bradley. She's a doctor of psychology. And we were talking about the idea of, the conscious mind and the unconscious mind or the subconscious, if you prefer that term. And we know from from some kind of psychophysics um, research that the conscious mind can at any given moment in the average person can handle maybe 
eight, seven plus or minus two pieces of information at any one time. That's about it. That's about it. So as you were saying, we cannot be aware of every single sensation that's operating on us at any one time. We, we would be overwhelmed. This is, the, this is what, and I'm a hypnotist, so this is what hypnotists use. What we do is we overload the conscious mind. The conscious mind then shuts down. We go past the gatekeeper at that point. We go past the critical mind and go straight to the unconscious and plant suggestions. This is what we do. We, we work on, we use that um, as something to work on. What we don't have here is clear definition of terms that makes it very, very difficult for us to discuss what the heck he can mean. And I know it's all very well, Al, you saying, well, what I think he means is this. Uh, but honestly, I might as well think he means pink elephants or, or goodness knows what, because without a foundation uh, of what he's trying to describe, um, where can we go? It, it, it makes this very, very difficult. So there are things that I think we're going to have to leave out of the discussion here. Otherwise, we're going to get bogged. We've been we've been recording now this podcast, 27 minutes of a one-hour show. We are still here on paragraph two, talking about definition of terms. Now, I know that that's largely my fault, but how do you, how do you dis discuss anything else if we don't know the reference points um, that we are actually discussing? So, for us, what do you think we can agree on? When he says what a sensation is, when he talks about it being a change in state of consciousness, just, are we? I actually don't think he needs to to put it in the terms uh, uh, at this point of something that has to be universally defined and quantifiable. Why not just say that you know we experience the world by means of sensations? We can see things, we can touch things, we feel things, and so on. and and the, and by that, I know that when I'm touching this. The arms of this chair that I'm sitting on, I'm feeling wood, and so on. Because then yep. he's going to come up and say how we how we classify these sensations and so on. What, what's wrong with just saying that so that people can understand it, say, uh, and actually relate it to their own experience of the world? I, well, I, let's you know, I, let's I do that. Well, yeah, I, I think we can, and I think perhaps we should, so that we can move forward with this chapter. Exactly. Uh, so, so uh, let's do that. So then he goes on to say, and now we have our definition of sensations, grouping of sensations in our memory to create uh, creates perceptions, and perceptions um, are, so to speak, the group of memories of sensations. So we, we remember how something uh, looked or smelt or felt, and then if we find something else that's similar, we, we could potentially group those and say, well, that's a perception. Um, we're looking at that as, uh, say, if we, we uh, for example, the tree example, trunk, branch, there's that tree. Mm -hmm. We're not saying trees in general. We're saying there's that tree. And we, we maybe tree. go it's to another one. Tree. The specific tree, yep. So because we've had a sensation of touching the, the bark, feeling the leaves, smelling the, the flowers, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the sensations, and we remember that, and we say, that's that tree. And we come back and we see that tree, and we say, there's that tree. We have a perception of all those different sensations grouped together. And so he's basically saying the accumulating memories of sensations begin to blend in consciousness into groups, and according to their similitude, tend to associate, to sum up, to be opposed, the sensations which are usually felt in connection with one another will arise in the memory in the same connection. That's a lot of words. I think what he's saying is 
we've experienced it before, we've called it a tree, we see it again, we go, there's that tree. Mm -hmm. That's my point of yep. view. Yeah, I think that's what it was too. It was saying, okay, yep, now we've got that memory, we recognize it again and go, oh, it's like that all the time. Oh yeah, that must be tree. <laughs> but it's either that tree I saw or it's a different tree, but it's tree. Yeah, so we've got a general term. Now we're doing, we're creating um, this hierarchical system uh, of groupings that um, biologists and, anat and anatomists use, and especially um, biologists and anthropologists use to group things. Um, I, I, and I, 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 can, I can quite understand how we do that automatically. Can I just say, I, I am going to go forward a, a, a paragraph here where he's starting to talk about things like colour. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very it's it's very easy to say, okay, I've got now a general impression of what trees are in general. So I'm not I no longer have to say that is a tree over there, but this thing that looks like it but isn't quite the same, I'm gonna use a different word for it. Okay, so we don't we just say they're both trees. That's general enough and we, we can work with that. When we're dealing with colour and sensation of colour like yellow, he uses yellow in my translation as this example. And I've got this really strange line in brackets where he says, the sensation of a yellow color will combine with the sensations of a yellow color. Yeah. At what point in psychophysics do we decide objectively, if we can do this objectively, when, where does yellow become a different color? At what point is, is it no longer yellow? That's an interesting one, isn't it? Because there's different shades of yellow. Yeah, I was going to say, they become, but they at... become, become green. Mm. Yes, I yes. going to say, I'm sure in psychophysics there would be that point once there was a different wavelength introduced, like this would be pure yellow and then we'd be going into shades and things like that. Um, well, then how do we describe the shades? Are they yellow or it. are they not? Yeah. This is and where, I, guess this is where I think you can't apply physics to something mm. like this. To yeah. something that that is anal that's an analog, it's not digital. You cannot. You and cannot that's actually a really big big thing, and that's a really big discussion in yeah, that field. Because is, how do you, yeah. you know, you can't just say, "Oh, yeah, that's that." You'll experience that. Now explain that to me. Explain that it's a tiny shade different, but it's not yellow. It's like yellow, ninety five percent. But what's the other five percent? How do you explain that? You know, it's it's hard. Well, so it's even, hard even doing that, that, even doing that, mm. like how how do you how do you even give a percentage? Because mm. oh, yeah. you you've got to have put a line in it somewhere to actually have got a ninety five percent and the other five percent. I find it very difficult. I mean, and I I think that for this chapter it can complicate things a little. So he does. I'm very quickly mention this. He does say that perceptions can be um, grouped in two ways similar properties so we can look at that, their character the color yellow uh, sour taste basically our senses or they can be grouped and he, he says um, based on the time of the reception of sensations so you compound sensations into a group as in the example of a tree you compound a load of different textures and, and smells and sights and different shapes into one sensation uh, one uh, perception of a tree. So he did split those those two. But then he moves on and he says, we attribute the cause of the group of sensations to be created by a common cause and the perception reflects the real properties of the object. And I think he's hinting at some of the some of the discussions that have been had in the previous chapters where, you know, are, are these things really 
um, created by common cause. We we perceive them to be, and we we put the properties of the object onto the object, not our perception of the object. I think that's what he's getting at here. But uh, over to you guys. Yeah, I certainly certainly took it that way. We we sort of take that information, that knowledge, that our own perceptions, and we place that onto whatever object is in front of us to group it into that new perception we maintain from it, or obtain it, I should say. What about you, Pete? Well, I'm just saying that to, to make that work, we, we have to come to what is perhaps an unwritten agreement uh, as a species. We, it doesn't matter what your language is. You, we all know that that's an elephant or that's a tree. But we have to agree on that because we could yeah. very easily, once we, if we all decided that we were going to operate independently and, uh, and, and give our subjective analysis to what we're experiencing, then we would never have anything any cooperation whatsoever, we would be like amoeba. We'd not be able to interact either. You know, it, you know, I'll meet you at the corner, and your definition of corner is over a cliff. You know, it's like, yeah, it's... exactly. You know, we, 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 so we we have we have this idea of the common agreements. Now, where that comes from, I I wouldn't like to speculate, but at some point, somebody decided that all of these shades, and we're going to call them yellow. And we're talking about that happening long before there was a mechanism um, to give us um, SI frequency um, ratings for the frequency of that light that's, that's reflected yep. to us. Um, so, 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 I mean, it, it's not part of this chapter, but it opens up this idea of the connectivity of consciousness at a level way beyond what we see as communication without without looking at consciousness. There is something that connects us where we can have some kind of collective agreement on things. And he does touch on this here. We wouldn't be able to develop language if if we didn't have this, this common agreement. Or the only other alternative is that, is that we have some kind, at some point we had some kind of great dictator that told everybody how it was going to be. You're all going to agree with me on this, and we can move on now. By the way, you're all going to be working in the field. <laughs> and, and it would be also uh, common to, uh, say, working in a three-dimensional space or a, a common level of consciousness. Like, I don't think, well, I can't prove this, but I wouldn't imagine my cat here would look at shades of yellow and go, that's yellow. Have no, it wouldn't be a concept or a, a perception. It would be something. It would look at different colours of yellow and perceive and and um, experience them, but I don't know if they'd put them together to say that's yellow. I don't know. I don't know what cats do, but I can tell you right now that you could train a dog to hit a button of a particular colour, and it would identify different shades. It would be an interesting experiment to see at which point that shade has changed enough from the bit that's taught that you've taught it. Um, so that it no longer can perceives it to be that colour. But you can train a dog. I've got, I have fundamental issues with stuff that's coming up in this in this chapter um, about animals and animal perception and animal consciousness that I can actually prove from experience is factually wrong. And this is not just subjective. It's not just my interpretation. I'm telling you, some of the things that he talks about with animals here are demonstrably, provably wrong. 
hundred percent. Okay. So and that would we'll, probably we'll, be in the we'll, second we'll half. To that. No, it's not. It's in this half. Oh, it's in this part. Okay. Well, let's well let's move along to get to that because I think that's going to be interesting. See, see indignance. I'm indignant. This is my indignance chapter. I can see. We have to take a photo of you, Pete, and put it up on the website of your indignant I look. I know. I know that he's done as well. <laughs> We're going to come to that. You guys are Australian, and I mean. We come to this quote he's got from this other guy, uh, and it's it's so horrific um, the way that he refers to native Australians. Oh, stop! Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, no, I, 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 I almost hit the roof with that one, and I yes, I yes. Of <laughs> anyway, that is but... so. Yes, yes. We'll we'll get to that because that is so. Uh, indicative of an attitude of the times, so, and now you just sit there and you go, "Oh no, 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 no." Anyway, let's go on. Yeah, because we are con deconstructing this. So when he's using that though as a point of reference for what he's explaining, I think it totally devalues his explanation, and I don't feel that I'm comfortable with accepting his point of view and what he thinks of this uh, based on that chapter. So you know, anyway, moving on. You've got your scaffold. Let, let's get to that. I've got my scaffold, so I'm just going to quickly move to this next point because I think we, we've already got this anyway. The grouping of perceptions gives you concepts, and concepts are the basis of language. So we can, we can communicate with each other with a word that we know explains a perception or a, a, group, a grouping of, of uh, sensations becoming groups of, sense, uh, groups of perceptions into a concept. For example, trees in general so whereas a perception would be that tree and if you go to another tree it's that tree they're separate a concept says well hang on they've got enough in common to be grouped together into a general concept of trees so that, that that's his next level up are we happy with that or can we yeah, move, yeah, that's, move, no, that's, move along? that is exactly yeah. how we operate isn't it so you know yep yep now he's he talks about levels of speech and he says that yeah, the lowest level. Now, this is where, on the lower levels of psychic life, and this is that psychic life concept, which I think he's referring to our our, um, our receptivity, but uh, I could be wrong. On the lower levels of psychic life, certain sensations can be expressed by certain sounds. Therefore, it is possible to express common impressions of horror, anger, pleasure. These sounds may serve as signals of danger. And indignancy. Give us, give us a sound for indignant, Pete. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, yeah. But uh, anyway, he then says further development of speech words as sounds express perceptions. And then he says uh, that for each new similar object must exist uh, a new sound or a new word. So speech basically demystifies what we're going to group together and what we're calling as something separate rather than, um, you know, giving everything a new word or calling different things the same word. So speech, speech has that, that mean, is our means of clarifying concepts. Now, he does go into something about uh, proper nouns and appellative nouns and substantives, which I did look up, but I don't know if we really need to cover all that, but he does go right into the concepts of Destructing speech, destructing, deconstructing speech. Um, okay, so then he says that appearance of words 
of a common meaning in human speech signifies the appearance of concepts in consciousness. And here we get to the quote from R.M. Buck in Cosmic Consciousness, which I must say is a good read, but I do take your point, Pete, where he talks about and uh, I, he, he, he gives the explanation as to consciousness being reflective in speech by referring to a savage compared to, and he talks about a Herbert Spencer, and I, I, he does this a couple of times in the book. What is it? Like I looked up Herbert Spencer. Herbert Spencer apparently lived yeah. from um, 1820 to 1903 and was an English philosopher, biologist, anthropologist, sociologist, okay. and prominent in, classical in other words, liberal In other words, a jack of all trades. <laughs> exactly. I've... I, my, my notes, you, you probably can't see it, I've written stupidity underneath this quote. <laughs> yes, well, I mean, he does He does say some pretty derogatory things. Well, Buck does. I'm not just um, doing this from the point of view of um, political correctness or a, a new ideas of tolerance and understanding. I have, a, I have a philosophical issue with this. This idea that he comes to in the quote about, you know, that... Somebody that's familiar with arithmetic will fill reams of papers making their calculation and take up endless time. But the, the guy that knows algebra, you know, Spencer, would do this on the back of an envelope and it would take no time at all, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to tell you right now, the quality of life that we have, I, I don't think that, you know, the, say, say somebody like any of the savages that he looks at, and I'm looking at, are their lives any less enriched because they don't bother with um, these reams of calculations, psychophysics, for example. Do they live a better life than us? Well, what we've, had, what we've been told ludicrously um, is that the life of the hunter-gatherer is harsh, brutal, and short. Not the case. We can look at native Australians for a start off. There's a great book called Voices from the First Day. I recommend anybody read it. And it's describing the lifestyle, the lifestyle of um, native Australians. But you could actually transpose this onto people in places like Borneo and, and South America. And the average amount of time a day that's spent in hunting and gathering is two hours. What's your working day like? Yeah, a bit more than that. Amount? Hang on, the amount of stress that they have is virtually zero. In times of great stress and famine, maybe the hunting and gathering may take three hours. Uh, um, oh, now, my what, God. <laughs> on, because what are they doing with the rest of that time? And this is where it gets really interesting. They're doing things now. We know from the very few people, and this, the, the author of this book is one of them, who've been allowed to live for long periods amongst these people, they spend these time in three ways. They sleep, they have lots, and I mean lots of sex. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering where the downside is here. And, the, and the, time, the, the other time is spent in what he describes as cultural pursuits. Now, this is art in all the forms that you see it. Art and ritual, and what we would now call meditation. They don't. They call they call it walking in, and you know the terminology, the dream time that we, the this English expression that we use, where they are, and they are constantly standing with, literally constantly standing with one foot in, let's call it the dream time, and one foot 
in our three-dimensional world. They have gone beyond this. So the idea, the supposition and the inference here that the people that are using algebra to make our world much more difficult and stressful are superior to people who are living that life and really connecting with the reality of the universe is, to me, quite upsetting that we're supposed to take that as a given. I don't take it as a given. And I, if this is the foundation on which he wants to base a lot of his, his other thought processes in this chapter, I'll go straight to chapter nine. Thank you very much. I mean, I'm not going to, obviously, but this, <laughs> this, is, this is the problem. It really, really is a problem. And yes, it is a sign of the times, but it, 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 it assumes that the technical world that we live in, the one that gives us so much stress and angst, which, by the way, these people don't suffer from, uh, is somehow superior. I'm not. I'm absolutely convinced that it's not a superior way of living. I'm absolutely convinced that it's not. I think a lot of people in the modern world who are saddled with debt and responsibility that they cannot handle and increasingly cannot handle the suicide rates, the, the treatment for depression and so on is now skyrocketing over here. I don't know what it's like in Australia, but it's absolutely horrific over here. And America's even worse. So how is this a superior way of living? Just because we can um, perform calculations on the back of an envelope. I really don't think that that matters too much to people who are living um, a more connected way of, of life. They, they are having enriched, fulfilling lives. They are, I mean, he talks about art later on as a way of expressing emotion. This is the way we express the stuff that language can't express. They are living their lives in doing this. Their whole lives are, are around this, this concept of using communication from the inside. And that, that to me, is where this book is supposed to be going. The whole book is supposed to be going, this idea of what's the value of consciousness and why do we seek these states of consciousness? Well, why not start um, approaching the people that actually live that life uh, and giving them some yeah. respect? I agree with that. that way. Way. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, 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 know, I know that was a, a very long rant, even for me, but I, I felt the need to say it. Um, no, I think, you know, I would certainly think the same thing. I When I read it and, and when I heard it I I did have to actually stop and think oh that is not okay that was such a uneducated and derogatory comment and you know without taking into account that you know it was almost hypocritical to me because I was like here you are sort of presenting this theory that's meant to be universal to everyone experiencing it and you're just saying oh but this group over here you're actually just not that good you won't experience it which is not true and it's not okay. Uh, going back to Wispensky, he's he's using this excerpt to to illustrate his point, a word, i.e. a concept, is an algebraic sign of a thing. Well, uh, every different civilization from hunter-gatherers all the way through use language. It won't be the same language, but it's still language. And it, it's, and and it works in exactly the they, same way. They, yeah. they do, they do actually, have concepts. Yeah. Yes, otherwise they would not be getting anywhere with their hunting, would they, or gathering, <laughs> you know. All right, well, I'm going to move on because I think we're up to the next bit that talks about what is an idea. And uh, Spensky's saying that an idea is a complex or an abstract concept. So in our speech, words express concepts or ideas, but ideas are 
the the word ideas are to explain um, things that have broader concepts and um, just quote by ideas are meant broader concepts not representing the group sign of similar perceptions but embracing various groups of perceptions or even groups of concepts so he's saying um, an idea is a little bit harder to grasp with language it can be it can be alluded to by language but language can't necessarily grasp it. He then goes further to say that our consciousness processes complex or higher emotions, moral, aesthetic, religious, in addition to the sensations of the senses. They cannot be expressed fully in words. Um, the content of emotional feelings, even the simplest, not speaking indeed, of a complex of the complex can never be wholly confined to concepts or ideas and therefore can never be correctly or exactly expressed in words. Words can only allude to the point. The interpretation of emotional feelings and emotional understanding is a problem of art. Uh, in combinations of words in their meaning, their rhythm, their music, in the combination of um, meaning, rhythm, music and sounds, colours, lines, forms, he goes on to say that music and art are much more uh, adept at expressing a higher form of concept. So, so really giving an impression as opposed to trying to use a word. If the, let me ask you, if, if well, I, I mean, if you let's just go to this point. I mean, if if this is you know the the interpretation of emotional feelings and emotional understanding is the problem of art. If that's the case, why has he tried to describe ideas in the previous seven chapters using language and trying to? put things into boxes that only a mathematician would be um, crazy enough to want to do. Yeah, I'm with you there. It, it's, I think, yeah, I think he's got a point, but he's not quite articulating it. I think he wants to bring in that art can generate something in you that you can't put into words. I'm going to suggest that we could, we could actually say what Uspensky's trying to tell us much simpler than he's expressing it. And the, by the way, that would have been a work of art. What he's trying to do is give us... So what do you think his concept with art and music and poetry is? What do you think, simplistically, he's trying to say? I guess that's the, the question. Well, that, that they express thinking. ideas that language is, is has difficulty in expressing. Um, yeah. Well, well, duh, we've known that for years. This is, a, this is pretty much a given. Hmm. I think the issue I took with it was it, it was like he was trying to make a definitive statement that you will never be able to use language to explain an idea, which I thought, unless he's being incredibly meta then with this yeah. whole publication, <laughs> we're kind of at a loss. Yeah, um, we are. Yeah, you, you, no, exactly. And that was my point. And you said, you said it in a few words. Brilliant. You know, and so it's sort of like, no, some ideas can't be explained by words. I agree with that. And so you do need things like art and, you know, in any form, but some things can be explained. I think making yeah. that definitive statement is his undoing. So I want to just talk about uh, his next, well, his concept here. He says the language of intuition. So the highest, highest point is intuition. And he says poetry endeavours to express both music and thought together. The combination of feeling and thought of high tension leads to intuition, to a higher form of consciousness. Thus in art, we have already the first experiments in a language of intuition or a language of the future. Art anticipates a psychic evolution and divines its future forms. What do you think? I almost don't want to speak because you're going to get upset at me. Oh, go on. 
upset uh, me. Oh, I'm going. Uh, yeah, I'm going now. Um, there's <laughs> there's another issue here. This this idea of instinct being the highest form of okay. Who's he applying that to? I oh, know intuition. You ask, mean you mean intuition? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And I'm going to ask: um, Are we suggesting then that? let's say, herds of wildebeest or buffalo on the North American plains suddenly intuitively understand that the time has come for them to move and intuitively know which direction to move in. Oh, well, actually, they are far more in touch with their intuition than people who are doing algebra on the back of a freaking envelope. So um, are they the highest form of consciousness? Are these animals that, that live instinctively and intuitively um, a higher form of animal than we have developed into. He does. He's not going to agree with that, but I think that that is something that we can now start looking at. So he does go. He does start talking about instinct. Are you are you saying that instinct and intuition are used interchangeably here in this chapter? Because I didn't get no, that. I'm I not, thought not, he was. No, no, I'm, no, I'm not. But he does talk about intuition um, being the highest. He does. You, it's, yes. You intuit. It, you intuitively understand that the time has come. Where does the voice come from? They don't have an alarm clock. The wildebeest do not have a calendar up there on the wall like I have here in my office. You know, saying, oh, hang on, it's January the 6th. Uh, it's time for us to go. It's time that we started heading north or whatever the heck. They don't do that. They intuitively know. He does talk about instinct. Um, well, let's move straight up to that. So he goes further to... Whichever word we use, animals are really, really better developed at using it than we are. They are not trapped by the language that we are trapped by, and they do live instinctually and intuitively much more than we do. If we're going to say that instinct or intuition or the combination of the two are the highest expression of consciousness, then we should actually be learning from animals and not uh, putting them lower in the spectrum than us. I didn't get to think that he was talking about it. Well, he, he, further on, it does go into um, using animals as an example of a lower level of consciousness, and using and and, yeah, and discussing and discussing how we could misinterpret instinct for uh, consciousness. And he further goes to explain that there's. A difference between a reflex, which is just a response to a stimulus and doesn't have any uh, any other dimension of preservation. So if you could um, hit someone's just below their knee and, and get that reflex of the leg going out, and if you stood them in front of a fire, their leg would still go out into the fire. It wouldn't go, hang on, I've got a fire there. Whereas instinct is a... Uh, a means of survival and so over evolutionary time those that had good instincts survived because they didn't go into the fire for example and those that didn't perished and therefore uh, I'm presuming he's getting to the point to say that instinct has a sense of preservation to it but I don't think he was saying that instinct is intuition I didn't get that from from what he was I, saying I thought they I were different yeah, I, I thought I'm, he was I'm, saying the the intuition was the more um, emotional perceptions, sort of in that predictive ability with that, whereas instinct was that automatic response. And I'm going to suggest to you that that animals intuit things. 
that, that as opposed to instinct. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. I don't. I look when you're talking about reflexive response, like hitting a knee with a hammer. That's not what makes animals migrate. That, not at all. That, no, and that, he's that, not even there suggesting there that. There is tons of evidence to suggest this. We don't know what the triggers are for them to migrate. And the only thing that we've not explored, because you can't explore it, is what is intuition? What is its cause? Where is its root? What does it come from? Because that's the exploration of consciousness. But animals certainly do migrate at the time that is best for them. And it's not the same time. And it's not like, oh, the leaves are coming out on this tree. It's time for us to go in this direction. It's, it can be different at all times, but it's always the right time for them. And this is intuition. Okay, the, I think I get that feeling we should be going. If animals would, could speak, that's what they'd tell you. We're getting a feeling that there's something not right. We, we've got to move over there. And that's what they do. And that's intuition. That's yeah, that, that to me makes sense. That, that, that is listening to something other than logic, isn't it? They're not looking at the ground, as you say, and going, oh, there's, there's leaves on the ground, I've got to go. They're, they're getting... They're getting a vibe, aren't they? You're right. Yeah. And, all, and also, I, I, I do want to make the point, you know, I'm not going to get into this discussion about whether intuition and instinct are, are have the same meaning in this chapter. I'm going to tell you that animals have both. They have both. So do we. They will respond to reflex just as we do. They have instinct just as we do, but they also act on intuition too. Without Because they haven't got a language to explain it to us doesn't mean that they don't have it. They have an and you look at Lassie. Between them. I always if, look at Lassie. if they didn't have it, Lassie would never go and rescue everybody like he does. She she does nope. <laughs> because by just knowing that it's time for danger. And Skippy, the I bush kangaroo. That you know? was just going to say, Skippy from you guys. It's like <laughs> yes. What's that, Skippy? Bushfire. Skippy. Skippy. <laughs> 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 so, so yes, Hollywood bases a lot of um, a lot of good storylines on that very premise. Are you still indignant? Yeah, a little bit, because, honestly. Well, because because then he uses these um, what he thinks are he seems to think that what he says. Oh, everybody agrees with me, so we can move on and into my more complex stuff that nobody will understand. So it doesn't matter. Um, I, I don't think he should. we should give him a pass on that. I mean, you know, the idea of you, you can train animals to do lots of things, so they, they do have an intellectual step up from where he's making an assumption. They really do. Um, why, you, you know, a, a dog can be trained to do a lot of things. By the way, um, as he was writing this, we were all understanding that Pavlov's um, discovery... Uh, about dogs uh, meant that we could train them because they w we just like we train human beings by the way it's no different we're no different than the dogs we will respond to whatever the feeling we get from the training we get so that we will react in a certain way ask anybody that's in the army uh, how that training works you will then react instinctually to events rather than having to analyze them uh, you know Somebody's shooting at me. I'd better duck behind this tank. You don't have to be told, do you? Well, the ones who have to be told naturally select themselves out of the gene pool, don't they? Because they're the ones that's them. right. That, yeah. and, and Spensky does make a point similar to that. Yeah, if, yeah, if, if you're not, 
if, if you don't use when he talks about instinct if you don't have the right instinct well you're toast and, uh, but but so this we're halfway through the chapter um obviously yeah. this chapter is is integral to the book otherwise uh he could have left it out having said that he don't as you say he don't he hasn't had an editor and it's not like today where people can post comments and challenge things online he can say whatever he likes and up into the wilderness it goes and uh, whether you, you have a comment to write back, you'd have to write him a letter and he probably wouldn't answer you necessarily. Uh, you know, so he does have a pass in the sense that what he says, it just remains unchallenged. But but until until we did this podcast, he had a pass, shall I say. Now we're getting to comment on it. So this chapter continues and he starts looking at He's, what, what he's trying to do is build a concept to say, well, I've said we've got uh, this scaffold of, of um, sensations all the way up through to intuition. How do we prove it? And he's then going to use, well, what have we got that we can say has a, a lower level of consciousness here on this planet than us to try and draw these conclusions? And he, he does turn to animals and... Whether he does this rightly or wrongly, that's where we're looking at the rest of this chapter. And I can see Pete is going to be as indignant as all get out, <laughs> especially when um, I, I agree with you, Pete. Some of this stuff you say, well, hang on, I have got a dog and I know my dog knows when it's, you know. I mean, to be fair, I the, my problem is that he's trying to set up foundations from which to move on. If his foundations are demonstrably factually wrong, as they were about the native Australians when he's using that quote from that book, and and some of the things that he says about animals, and he's making this assumption that we're all going to, this is common knowledge, we all agree on this, don't we? Well, now we're living in a world where there's been enough research, and, and let alone me having a pet dog, there's enough research to say that this is factually incorrect. So... And, and I mean factually incorrect. There is a big difference between it being my opinion that he's incorrect. It's factually incorrect. So um, if that's his foundation, what confidence do you have in what's coming um, next? So, yeah, so that, that, that's great. I think, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll give him a bit of a run for his money, especially in the next half of the chapter, and that will be uh, next time we meet. So I look forward to that. And thank you very much for today's discussion. I think we have um, uh, we've made a lot of ground and explained things that maybe Aspensky didn't explain as well as he could have. So well, I just wish he stop doing this. I really do. I'd like to get on to the really good stuff. Stop doing this to me, Aspensky. Well, it's it's the journey, and we are um, we are obliged to go chapter by chapter so that we we take everyone yeah. on the journey. But yes, rest assured, there's some very good stuff to come, and we will we will give it its due merit. So um, okay, let's let's wrap it up there, and uh, we will catch up for the second half of this uh, in due course. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Steph. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great.